0: We are moving into the book of James, and we're going to see a faith that works. So join me in prayer, and we'll jump into this time. Father, I thank you for the last song, that we can lay down our burdens before you, that we can come as we are, that you receive us not because of what we do, not because of our works, but because of Christ. And we trust in him to be our salvation, him to be our good works, and then out of that, we let it overflow into how we live our everyday lives. Brother, would you teach us to be kingdom people in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Open our hearts and eyes by the Spirit to see the glory and, and wonder and love that you have for us. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. All right. So last week... We talked about Jesus Christ at a feast. He went to the Pharisees and he rebuked them because they had failed to embody the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that was last time. He, they failed to embody the principles of service and humility and grace that characterized Jesus' kingdom. Now I think that that was actually a good transition into our new series. Our new series in James, which starts today. Yep, yep, in case you didn't know, it starts right now. Uh, (laughs) So today we're moving away from Luke, seeing the person of Jesus, and instead moving into the Gospel as it's presented in James. Now we might think that Luke and James couldn't be more different books. Because we're used to the Gospels more so. We're used to Luke, the stories of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It actually tells the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And in comparison, James can feel really worksy. It can feel like it's just a book of commandments. It doesn't ever talk about Jesus that much. mentions him a couple times. It never explicitly says what the gospel is. And it can seem like there is very little grace in James. So much so that great theologians like Martin Luther... Hated this book. They wanted to have it thrown out of the canon because it just didn't feel like it fit, it didn't feel like the gospel. It felt like a different message because it didn't have grace, didn't have faith, didn't have Christ. And I think we can do better than that. We have to recognize that that is how a lot of people come to this book. They come to it as just a book of works. I think instead we can think of it very much like we thought of last week's sermon on the kingdom of God. This is Jesus giving us a picture of what the kingdom is actually like. A picture of what it looks like to practically live out the grace that we have already received from Jesus Christ. I think that is what James is trying to do. James isn't showing us the gospel in lofty theology, like we might be used to in Ephesians or Romans. It's not giving the gospel in stories, like we saw in Luke. It's giving the gospel in how it looks to live everyday life as someone who has been saved by grace. The gospel is underneath, and it's going to be the power behind doing anything in James. That is where the gospel lies, and we want to find that gospel underneath James, and then live out the kingdom principles that it embodies. So today, we are moving into the gospel of James, and starting with an introduction to the book. It's kind of simple. We're going to talk about the author of the book, James, and its audience. But then we're also going to jump into the main content of this first chapter. James is going to teach us how we can suffer as people in the kingdom. How we can suffer with joy. That's going to be the the core of the sermon. And the core difference is going to be we can either suffer with faith and with humility. Which leads to perseverance and leads to life. Or we can suffer in a way that is doubtful and that is prideful. And that's going to lead us down the road of sin and death. We're given those two options in James. And he's basically telling us that as new kingdom people, new people of this kingdom under King Jesus, we can trust that God is going to provide for us. That he is going to give us good things as his kingdom kingdom members, as his children, as the ones that he loves. And as a result, we can trust whatever he gives us. Trials or not. So let's jump into it. Let's look at James 1, verses 1 through 18. You guys are already there. You're just ahead of the game. If you're looking for James, this is on page uh, 1011. All right. Read with me James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trial of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, and is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. But the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of all his pursuits. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed away by his own desires. Then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death." Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." All right. So let's start with just a general introduction. Let's start with the author of the book of James. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who is this James? Now, there are a bunch of options, actually, because there's a bunch of Jameses in the Bible. But the one that is traditionally settled on, what most scholars agree is probably the most likely James, is that this is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, when we say that, we have to make sure it's half-brother, right? Right? James is the the son of Joseph and Mary, not God and Mary. So we make that slight distinction. But he is the brother of Jesus. And before we move on, I think we want to kind of take that with its full weight and recognize that that is quite a testimony that the brother of Jesus would become a professing Christian and a leader in the church of God. Because we wonder, how how did he do it? we could wonder, uh, he might have been able, Jesus might have been able to deceive other members of the family. Right? He might have been able to deceive Mary. Well, mothers, I think, have that tendency to think their children are just magic children, perfect little angels. I think when Mary went around saying that her son was God, probably people rolled their eyes. Oh, and another one of these. All right. Yeah, my, my kid is God, too. Let's, let's all go with that. But... Now you could, you could fool the mother. Who are you not going to fool? You are not going to fool the little brother. Because he knows. He, is, he has seen the worst. Now, my older brother, he is, he's great. He's a really nice guy. He's probably nicer than I am. I like him a lot. But I would never be deceived into thinking that he is sinless. Or he is God. Or that because of his inherent righteousness, he would probably never die. No, I would never think that because he has clearly sinned against me, probably with good reason because I've sinned against him, but it's just not the relationship that we would ever have. And so it's a big deal that James is saying that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a servant of his brother, that his brother is Lord alongside God. Now that is quite a testimony that his brother could really say, no, I, I really think he was the incarnate God He never sinned against me once. He never threw a rock at me or pushed me off the couch or stole my toys. Never lied to Mary about me. We look for testimonies that Jesus is really who he says he is. Here is his brother who knows him well saying just the same thing. Now he became actually a leader in the church. He became one of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the big time city This is the capital of the old kingdom of Israel. And he is leading that church, which is a a church that is especially important to Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians in the region. Which takes us to the audience. Who is James writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Alright, who are these people? The 12 tribes. Well, Acts 8 talks about how just following the persecution of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, the Jews who didn't believe in Christ started persecuting Jewish Christians. So much so that these Jewish Christians had to flee, had to go out into the nations. This is actually how the gospel is spread. These Jewish believers went out into the world speaking of Christ. And so James is writing to these people, these Jewish Christians and calling them the Twelve Tribes. Now you wonder, why does he call them the Twelve Tribes? Now we have to remember our history a little bit. By this time, the, the Twelve Tribes were kind of a historical remnant. If that, kind of a memory. We think of the Twelve Tribes as the past Israel, the past kingdom that had long split, that had long fallen. It used to be this great kingdom where the 12 tribes were united under King David, under King Solomon, but that has been long past. A lot of those tribes have actually been dispersed so much that you wouldn't even be able to tell of one person from another. They'd intermixed with so many different people that the tribes would have practically been lost. And so when James is saying this, he's not just speaking to people as like, oh, you're part of the family of this, you're part of the family of that, no. He's using an old term that doesn't actually make sense anymore. And I think we have to recognize what the point is of calling them the 12 tribes. I think he's reminding them that in Christ, in Jesus Christ, this new king, they are a new kingdom. They are the new 12 tribes, they are the people of God, they are the nation of Israel, this new kingdom. He's reminding them of who they are. That even though they feel like they're just kind of dispersed people in the middle of nowhere, that no, they're members of this invisible kingdom. And they've been spread out and they're surrounded by people with different beliefs and different principles, different laws, but they are still called to live as people in an invisible kingdom, following the king, loving the king, living out the principles of a kingdom where they are. So that is who James is writing to. He's writing to a dispersed people. In an invisible kingdom. The laws of this kingdom. And how they are to live out that faith. Alright. What does that mean for us? Well if you are in Christ. You are a part of this invisible kingdom as well. Now you don't see it. You don't see your other tribe's people around you all the time. Because you are spread throughout. You're spread into the world. And you're surrounded with people who are not part of your kingdom. Your friends, some of your family, your co-workers, your neighbors. They aren't part of your tribe. They don't believe the same thing you do. And yet, you must, in the midst of that, kind of put on display the kingdom of God. That is what James is calling us to do. So that is what this book means for you if you are in Christ. This is kind of, this is your kingdom. It's telling you what your kingdom is like. But what about for those of you who don't believe in Christ? Who don't really care about him that much? I hope that this would at least be a picture of what Jesus wants his kingdom to look like. We get a lot of false visions of the church and of the kingdom Around us. We see a lot of hypocrisy in the church. Or just people not following Jesus as we should. We're sinners. We we don't do this perfectly. We don't even do this well most of the time. But this is Jesus. Basically presenting forth. How his kingdom is supposed to be run. And I hope that if you don't. Know Christ or believe in Christ. It would at least be. Kind of a captivating vision. Something that you haven't seen played out. And something that. You might want to be a part of. All right, so that is the introduction to James. But James doesn't kind of focus on the introduction, he just jumps right into it. So his first matter of business is he's going to teach these kingdom people, members of the kingdom of Jesus, how they are to react to trials and suffering. Verse 2 Count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now he just eases right into it here. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Now he said that that James is gonna call us to live as different people. Now this is gonna be different. Right, we have understanding of how this might look. we probably expect him to say something like, uh, "Don't get angry or bitter in the midst of trials. Kind of push through. Or be, be, I don't know, optimistic in the midst of trials. But no, he's saying rejoice in your trials, and he's not even saying just rejoice while your trials are going on." It's not saying that. It's saying rejoice in the trials. Rejoice about the trials themselves. That is something that we are not going to be able to do on our own. That is something that's going to challenge us. That's something that needs an abundant faith. That looks very different than we live our lives now. To actually rejoice. So how does does James anticipate us being able to do that? He gives us his reason. He says, it is because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That suffering produces steadfastness. What is steadfastness? Steadfastness is uh, a momentum, a pushing forward. It's It's a movement language. It's like endurance or perseverance. He's saying that suffering is supposed to compel us forward, force us to keep going give us more strength in our faith, an ability to see where we are going with clarity and to run there with renewed vigor. Now, how does that work? I think that the trials are supposed to show us what this life is actually like. And it's supposed to give us a kind of bleak picture. We're supposed to be reminded that this life is not where we want to live. This is not our kingdom. We are not all excited to go sit down on the side of the road and make our camp here. No, suffering pushes us forward. It reminds us that we have a better kingdom that we want to get to, a better kingdom we are part of, and we're not gonna be content just sitting here. We're gonna push on and get to that destination. We're running with kind of suffering, nipping at our heels, reminding us, no, we are running towards something better and something good. All right, that is, that's a good picture of how to face trials. They'd push us forward, they'd keep us on the race that we are set out on. But your obvious response to that is, but that's not how it feels. Right. And that's not how we react. How we tend to react is we just want to lay down on the side of the road, just take a little rest. Or we might go to one of our rest stops, seek out worldly comfort. It's just too hard a race. Or maybe we keep running the race, but we run it because we are bitter. And we are angry runners. Right? No runner's high here. We're just kind of frowning our way through. That suffering just adds to the pain of it all. All right, so there's two ways of reacting to this suffering. One looks really optimistic, the other one looks pretty sad. What is the difference between the two? Oddly enough, James says that the difference is wisdom. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Part of the power that keeps us enduring in this race is to see suffering from the wisdom of God. The wisdom that God is going to give us. That we could seek that, and God will actually explain our suffering. We talked about wisdom in Ecclesiastes a lot. We talked about how wisdom explains the world and explains what God is up to. What is actually valuable. And God's wisdom tends to circle around the kingdom of God. It points us to say that No, relationship with Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing in the world. And then if you're going to get one thing, it ought to be relationship with Jesus. That is where you need to be. That is where you're going to thrive and be joyful. And so we might have answers that aren't what we might expect. So we say, okay, God, why did you push us out of our homes? Why did you push us out of Jerusalem? God might respond so that you might know that your real home is not on this earth, is not in Jerusalem. Your real home is in heaven. It is with me and you are not there yet. You might ask, well, why is my marriage so hard? And he would respond, because you're supposed to remember that you are ultimately married to me, not to your spouse. I am that relationship that you need might say, well, why did I lose my job? And you'd say, so that you could depend upon me as a reminder that I am the one who sustains you, not your works. All right, so we have answers from God. Wise, good, biblical answers. I think we kind of act like there are no answers sometimes. But God does give us answers. And that's kind of the first step in the, to suffer well And to suffer with joy is to seek out the wisdom of God. To see what He is trying to teach us through it. To find the reminders of the kingdom. For us to to forget about this world and push towards a better one. In the midst of suffering, we need to be diligent and kind of trusting people that are seeking out this wisdom. We seek it out through His Word, we seek it through prayer. We seek it through wise counsel from other believers to see how God is actually using this suffering in our lives, that we might come to know Him more. But the problem is that we kind of hate His answers most of the time. We don't like these answers. They seem trite. They seem overly religious. They seem overly spiritual. And oftentimes when we hear these answers, we aren't excited to hear them. We're frustrated by them. It's like, but, yeah, that's, that's not really the point. It's not really what's so hard about this. Yeah, I know there's a heaven, but why is it so hard right now? And that's where we have to unite our wisdom to faith. This wisdom can't just sit out there. We actually have to pursue it and believe it in faith. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from God. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So you can ask God for wisdom. And he might give it to you. He might speak very clearly from heaven. He might speak through his word. He might speak through another believer. But it doesn't do any good because you don't have faith to believe those things. And they're just gonna fall flat, they're gonna seem like dead, hopeless, useless words that don't actually have any life. They don't leave us feeling really grounded and ready to run the race, they just leave us tossed to and fro by the waves. Every trial just flits us around and we have no grounding. So we are called to unite the wisdom of God with faith. To believe that what he says is true. That when he says, this is good, this is best for you, we believe him. We believe him at his word. We believe that the things of the kingdom are better than the things of this world. That's how's just going to happen when we hear them. We have to actually trust him. The faith that united us to Christ is faith that continues. It's faith that we exercise and work out in the daily lives of our, our suffering. All right. Then James goes on and reminds us of one of these pieces of wisdom that we ought to remember during suffering. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of all his pursuits. James reminds us that one of the main pieces of wisdom that God gives us about this kingdom is that the lowly will be exalted and those who are exalted will be brought low. Now I have to say that this has seemed like a theme lately in our church. It's come up a lot. And... I don't choose all the passages. We just go through what we go through. I think it it seems like God is actually trying to teach us this lesson. That those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who are humbled by God will be exalted. I wonder why he keeps teaching us this message. Maybe because we haven't actually believed it in faith. We haven't taken it for what it actually means and, and trusted him with it. But that is kind of... A running theme throughout the whole of scripture. That's why we keep seeing it so much. Humiliation leading to exaltation. Because that is the story of Jesus' life. That is the story of what Jesus went through. You know, through humiliation to exaltation. And part of the wisdom that James gives us is a reminder that in suffering you will be humbled. You will be brought low. But you will be exalted as a result. You will find exaltation from God. Not from man, not in the eyes of men, but you will be exalted. So, we're to trust God when he promises that suffering will be for our good. Will lead us to perseverance and steadfastness. It will actually help us to loose our chains to the world. It will remind us, no, this world is perishing. That's what that suffering reminds us of. That this is not our world. And this is not the world that we want. We're not going to invest in this world in the same way. We're going to remember that the kingdom. Is an eternal place. Of infinite joys. Much unlike this one. But then he has a kind of final wisdom. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When we trust God with this kind of wisdom in faith, we are promised to be exalted, as we see here, with the crown of life. We think that all of this suffering just breeds death, that it brings misery. No, it actually results in life. That's where we see that that we don't become more mature just because suffering is kind of all aestheticism is, is good, and no, it's because as we suffer, we move towards the kingdom and towards the king himself. We're moving towards God, the one who loves us, the one who is holy. And as we get closer to God, we become more holy, as He is holy. We become more joyful as He is joyful, more content as He is content. Heaven isn't just a kind of abstract place. It's its presence. It's being in the presence of God himself. To be in the presence of the one who loves us. And so when we think of suffering, God is using it to bring us to himself. He's driving us towards him. That we might love him. That we might know him. That we might be with him. So that is what it looks like to respond to suffering with faith. to kind of let the world go and run towards God and find that he is ultimately the most valuable. All right, so we have a choice. Once again, we have choices, real choices. To trust God in the midst of suffering, to trust that what he's doing is best, to trust that this is actually real, or to doubt. All right, so what might this look like practically? All right, so let's say you lose your job. You've lost your job. What are you going to do with that? Well, first, we're going to seek the wisdom of God. (laughs) Seek the wisdom of God. Why might God have taken that job from you? Why might you have lost it? All right, there's a bunch of different answers here. Some might not be true for some, might be true for others. You could say that maybe God is trying to remind us that He is the provider that it is by faith in him that we will be provided for, not by our own works. Maybe he's trying to teach you that you need to be dependent upon other people. He's forcing you to do that as a sign that you are ultimately supposed to be dependent upon him. Maybe it's just so that you'll pray more. See, you'll seek him more. You'll see that you need him more than ever. And then you believe those things. You believe that those things are better. That those things are better than a paycheck. That those things will result in more value than a job could ever offer you. That is faith. That is believing God at his word that he is doing what he is doing for a reason. And once that suffering has, has affected, has kind of worked in your heart, you find that you have something more valuable than you had before. You have a better relationship with Christ. You've depended upon your Father more. Maybe you've even seen Him provide in a different way than you ever had. And that means that your suffering has actually made you happier. You can rejoice in your suffering because it has brought you to a better state before God. Now, that may seem crazy, and that might seem really spiritual, but that is. How God works joy in us. To find joy in Him and not in the things of the world. Alright, so that's all, that's all good. That sounds great. Let's all do that. <laughs> Alright, James, James is not naive. In verse 13, he talks about what the alternative to that is. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has been conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. The temptation in the midst of trial is to think that God is cursing you, that he is tempting you, that suddenly God is cruel, that he is evil that he's just trying to make your life miserable. That is going to be the temptation. And James is reminding these people, okay, I know that you're going to want to think like that. It feels like God is mistreating you. But first of all, he is not tempting you. He's never been tempted before. And he's not going to tempt you either. Instead, James reminds the people that if in the midst of suffering, we are falling, we are stumbling, we are sinning, it's not because God is making us sin or tempting us to sin. Because sin doesn't start outside of us. right? Temptation doesn't start outside of us. Temptation starts in our heart. That the situation, the suffering could lead us two different ways. It could lead us to love God more, or it could lead us to sin. And the difference starts in our very hearts and souls. That God does not tempt us, we tempt ourselves. We lure ourselves astray by our desires, and that takes us down this road towards sin and death. I think we like to say that, no, no, it's, it's a situation. If I weren't in this situation, I wouldn't be sinning. James reminds us no, it's, it's your heart wants to sin. Your heart is choosing to sin. It's not forced in that decision, it is our wicked hearts. And so we have two cycles here we can suffer in faith and in wisdom, and we'll find ourselves being with perseverance, moving towards life and towards relationship with God, or we can suffer with doubt and with pride kind of hating God and being miserable with him. And the result is that we sin and we lead, we're led towards death. All right, that is that is hard. Look at verse 16. James reminds us of how we are to think about these things. He gives his kind of final exhortation. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How are we tempted to be deceived? This happens two ways. We can deceive ourselves, or be deceived by Satan himself, or by our hearts, into thinking that bad things are actually really good gifts. Bad things look really good and we are led astray by them and we have to admit that we are, we're pretty terrible at discerning this kind of stuff. Right? We think of addiction. We think that these are great things. Drugs or pornography or gluttony, all of these things that cause addiction, we think they're great and we think they're gifts in the midst of it and then they come and bite us. They destroy us in the end. We pursue gifts that were never given from heaven. We pursue gifts on this earth. We create kind of perverted gifts and say that they are good things. James reminds us now these real good gifts are from heaven. They're given in such a way that God gives them. We don't just take them for ourselves. And in that sense, God is kind of like uh, a parent child proofing their house. All right, so kids kids want all this goofy stuff that's going to kill them. Like, they want to, like, climb the shelves, then pull things down on themselves. So the parents have to go around. Me, in case you're thinking about this right now, like, oh, man, this is going to be terrible. Uh, <laughs> our kid's going to die. Um, go around the house and figure out, like, okay, they're probably going to want this, and, like, we probably need to make sure they can't get this and, and kill themselves. I remember when I was little, I had a slot screwdriver and was going towards the plug, and, like, I thought this is going to be a great thing. Sticking this thing in here. It's going to fit perfectly. It's going to be so fun. You know, and mom came and ruined the party. But she wasn't being mean. She was trying to make sure I didn't get electrocuted. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a kindness on, this, on the side of my mom. That is oftentimes what God is doing. We feel like he's snatching good things away from us. When they are, they're going to destroy us. Is it fun? Did I recognize that my mom was being nice to me and taking my screwdriver? No. But that is the reality. And that is why faith comes in. We trust. Okay, God is is for our good. He's helping us. He's protecting us. But it also goes the other way. There are a lot of good gifts that seem really bad. That's where trial falls in. oftentimes trial from God is... A good gift that seems miserable. And we cannot see it for what it is. Well, God here, and James is reminding us that there's no shadow in God. There's no change. All right, when, we think of, when we think of the daytime, light turns to darkness. Right, sometimes maybe God is nice and God is happy and God gives you good things because he likes you. But other times, God gives you terrible things because he hates you sometimes. That is not what how it works, right? We are solid in Christ. When there's no change, God is never going to change. think of us any differently than we are his children, whom he loves. And he gives us good things. We don't think they're good things because they don't feel like good things. But he is trying to make sure that we enjoy him to the most that we can. That we enjoy creation in the way that it's most, supposed to be enjoyed, that we receive his gifts on the best possible grounds that we might have the most pleasure that he can find for us. That's actually his goal. It's not to make us miserable. It's not to ruin the party. It's so that we might actually have true joy in him and in the things that are truly joyful. All right. Now that is a big task. And I could just say, go, go forth and believe and have faith that all these miserable things are great. Um, But I think we're going to, we're going to come back and say, but I don't believe you. I don't believe God. I don't want to trust him. I have trouble trusting him. And I think the best way to trust him is to look at the best gift that he ever sent down from heaven. The very best gift, which of course is Jesus Christ Himself. Let's use that as our archetype. Let's use that gift as the one that teaches us about the gifts that God gives. All right, so God gave the gift of Himself, Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when He came down from heaven, no one liked Him. All right, no one was all rejoicing that God gave this great gift. They did it first, a little bit. The first part of Luke is about that, but that goes pretty quickly. This is a great gift. God gives himself to us. And the people, they didn't like that gift. We often are kind of disappointed with that gift. I feel like sometimes we're kind of like convincing ourselves, okay, no, this is a good gift. This is good. We like this. But it seems like God is more excited about it than we are. Right? Like grandma when she gives you this sweater and you're like, Ugh. Like she, she's really happy to be giving me this, but I'm not. That's how we treat Jesus. And the people, they saw Jesus and it's not what they wanted. They wanted this exalted king to come down and end all of their suffering by creating this big kingdom where he just stomp out all the bad stuff. But instead, he sends this lowly carpenter who dies on the cross. They didn't like this gift, so they they killed the gift. They destroyed the gift. They put the gift up on the cross. Humanity took kind of the best thing that God could possibly give, and they killed him. Now that tells us something about our ability to assess what is good and what is bad what we really need, but oddly enough, God was generous even in that. He let us completely destroy himself, his own son, and as a result, he recreated the world. He gave us what we actually wanted. He, we wanted him to end suffering, him to stomp it out, and he ended up stomping it out in our very hearts, in our souls, in our minds. He takes on suffering to the utmost. And he gives us an ability to find suffering, actually to find joy in the midst of it. To know that it cannot have victory. Whether things are going well or things are going poorly. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. God, out of his own will, by the word of truth, that is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and was lifted up into glory and that we will be exalted with him, he gave that to us so that we might be new creations. New people. New people who have a new position towards this life. Who can see it for what it is and know that there is a better life beyond. He gave us a new position towards God. Right? We who rebelled against God, who have hated him even as he loved us, who killed his son, who are apathetic about what he's done for us. He has recreated us and turned us into sons and daughters, children of his. Children that he gives good gifts to because he is a good God, because we have the goodness of Christ placed on us. We're not just kind of bad children, we are good children in his sight. And he treats us as such. That is the new relationship we have with God through Christ. And finally, he does give us a new relationship to suffering. We can see that suffering results in life, that suffering for Jesus Christ resulted in glory, it resulted in the salvation of the world, in a new kingdom that is to come. And so, in Christ, we see that we can trust God, he is not going to withhold. He is giving good gifts, gifts that we cannot see or will not embrace, but these are good gifts and things that we often rejoice, rejoice in, and have joy in.